Join us virtually for the 2020 Zero Mental Health Symposium next Wednesday through Friday. Mental Health Association Oklahoma will bring together state, regional, and national experts to focus on healing from historical trauma during this three-day event. And thank you to our sponsors who make this event possible with a special thank you to the Anne and Henry Zero Foundation. We specialize our services to understand the intersectional oppressions that individuals experience because of the historical trauma associated with their race, associated with their religious background, associated with their culture. It's important that we do all we can to improve and make sure we meet people where they're at and help them in their particular challenge. You're listening to the Mental Health Download from the nonprofit Mental Health Association Oklahoma. I'm Matt Gleason. On today's episode, our guests are Toby Jenkins, CEO and Executive Director of Oklahomans for Equality and the Dennis R. Neal Equality Center. And he's joined by Jose Vega, who serves as the Deputy Director of Oklahomans for Equality. And you can learn more about Oklahomans for Equality at okeq.org. And today, our friend Avery Wilson, who serves as the association's assistant director of development, asked Toby and Jose to be on the show to talk about the Zero Mental Health Symposium session titled Histories of Healing, LGBTNB Plus Community Resilience. You can register today for the virtual Zero Mental Health Symposium coming up September 30th through October 2nd at zerosymposium.org. So as the session description explains, people with lesbian, gay, bisexual, transgender, non-binary, and related identities have long experienced discrimination in the U.S. Discrimination against this population results in psychological distress, referred to as minority stress. And minority stress is associated with clinically significant levels of depression, anxiety, and suicidal ideation. Throughout history, people have developed tools and support networks to combat this discrimination and distress. At the symposium, the panel will feature advocates who will share their perspectives on the fight for resilience and healing. Okay, let's get the conversation started. The Mental Health Download starts now. Toby and Jose, thank you so much for being here today on the Mental Health Download. Uh, We're super excited to have you, and as an openly gay woman living here in Oklahoma, I certainly appreciate all the work that you all do. Thank you so much. Thank you for having us. So my first question is, how has life and your advocacy work been for you during COVID-19? Jose, let's first start with you. Programming. So like program, I do, I oversee the program development and supervise all of the programs that we offer here at the center. Some things that have changes and that have changed has been, we can't meet in person anymore and social distancing. So we've done a lot of online zoom calls, pro, a lot of program activities online. So all of our programs are online meeting via Zoom, and each each week we have to find something different. Every month we have to find something different for them to do. That could be karaoke online, playing a little social game online, a dance party online. All of those programs have to have to be converted to online, and then our counselors as well. Our counselors have moved on to telehealth. And so we've made sure that the community is still receiving the resources needed. Um, 
but practicing social distancing and keeping everybody safe. We have opened, recently we have opened the center now with some limited programming and resources where individuals can come in. And Toby can talk a little bit more about how that has changed our structure here within the center. So the center technically never really closed because our medical clinic continued to stay open and we still had individuals who were coming to us uh, because they were experiencing some kind of trauma or crisis. So we always had staff persons who were here to assist with that. And the helpline was, you know, continued to be answered 24-7. Most of the staff worked remotely for about the first three months. And then towards the end of June, we did open up back for in-person services. And so what Jose described was a lot of uh, the programming that we do that is social in nature, which helps reduce isolation. However, we still had critical crisis issues because we had about 300 uh, older adults who were enrolled in our SAGE program who all of a sudden were just kind of by themselves at home. And isolation is, is the doorway to death for our community. And so we had to really ramp up our abilities to stay connected to our older adults. And in the course of about a week, we were feeding about 100 older adults and we provided masks for almost 500 people before that became the fashion thing and that people were asking for masks. We had a little lady in Claremore, Oklahoma, whose uh, grandmother had been a nurse during the um, 1918 pandemic. She pulled out her pattern and started uh, creating masks. And it, I remember there was one time we had to go all over Tulsa finding the elastic uh, for her to be able to make those masks. But we were distributing masks, mailing them. I think in the course of a week, we were mailing about 70 masks a week to older adults. We also, what we had called toilet paper drops. We knew that a lot of our older adults would feel uh, very threatened going to the store and they'd go there and then all the toilet paper would be bought out. So we were fortunate. Kimberly Clark is very good to us every summer. So we were able to do toilet bell drops, taking care of our older adults. And then at the end of June, we opened back up because during this time, we've experienced nine suicides associated with our constituents just because of the isolation and the extreme elevation of trauma and, you know, people losing their jobs, relationships being extremely challenged. We've also saw kind of a rise of reported cases, domestic violence among our relationships. And so it caused us to really have to pivot. There is one advantage that came to us. We have been doing chapter work in rural Oklahoma for about, I guess, five years as Jose kind of oversees that. And during this time, because of technology and online programming and because of Zoom calls and Google chats, and I forget, and Discord for our youth programs, I can't remember all the different platforms we use. We now realize that county border and a zip code are no longer a barrier to us being able to get to you and provide uh, direct services and provide support for individuals, especially in rural Oklahoma, who are experiencing lots of lack of support in their counties and their, their small cities. Sharing what you were sharing about the masks and uh, toilet paper, we also did a lot of the food, delivering the meal preps food. I had my constituents of Latinx individuals that I would hand out food to. Chrissy, our transgender facilitator, had her constituents, a number of constituents that she had to go deliver food 
you had some, KO did as well. Yeah, yeah because of the diversity of our staff, we knew certain target communities uh, within our communities, within our own community to be able to provide that. And that was in partnership with Hunger Free Oklahoma, which was just a lifesaver to so many people. Just an absolute lifesaver. Well, I'm so glad to hear that you guys were able to pivot because the programming and services that you provide is so critical and engaging our LGBT community right now is so important, especially during the pandemic. So that's awesome to hear that you guys never really had to close your doors. So let's transition now to talking about your breakout session at the Zero Mental Health Symposium, which is coming up soon. Tell us about the session. And I also want to hear what you're both excited to share with our attendees on this subject. Toby, let's start with you. So when we saw what the theme was going to be uh, this year for the Zero Symposium, we were very excited because we deal with such intersectional issues where we're, you know, our, our, our services provided and the way we provide them are certainly offered through what we consider white lenses. And when I say white, I mean white people lenses. This is how white people would address these oppressions associated with sexuality and and gender struggles. And so we have really had to work hard for several years. And Jose has led this effort to really diversify our programming so it truly reflects our community. So we have what we call IndigiQueer, which is our program for individuals who identify as Native American and indigenous folks. We have our people of color programming, our Latinx programming, really the diversity of our transgender programming for gender non-binary individuals and for gender variants and gender uh, expansive individuals. So we've really been working hard to diversify our community because the needs of our community are so diverse. And what we want to do because of the Zero Symposium's emphasis on historic traumas, I really felt like it was important that we not just talk about LGBTQ issues, but the intersectional oppressions uh, that individuals experience within their communities, which are also experiencing historical trauma. And so that was how we really wanted to emphasize this, this, this particular discussion. And so several of the panelists will be speaking from their experiences of what their communities, uh, their ethnic and racial communities experience, interpreted through their experiences as LGBTQ plus individuals. Jose, I would love to hear about what you're excited to share with our symposium attendees on this session. Yeah, so sharing sharing some personal stories of mine and as well as all the stories that come through the center, how the Latinx community has to code switch, are attacked by racial hatred and homophobic hatred as well, all at the same time, they go hand in hand, and how the Hispanic community has uh, faced discrimination, uh, or Latinx community has faced discrimination, and they're not aware of where to go for resources or how to defend themselves. Usually, I remember growing up, my family, when they were discriminated, they would just uh, drop their head down and just leave and just never come back or just ignore it completely and avoid those areas. And nothing gets done. And they continue to do that hatred. So share share those experiences, those stories and um, resources with the community. Can you explain to our audience how minority stress has affected you both personally? Jose, let's start with you. 
going back to like the uh, code switching. So I know that there, I have to speak a certain way or act a certain way or be a little bit different when I am in a room full of individuals that don't look like me or sound like me or aren't uh, any similarity to me. Also, the uh, attack that I had. So kind of like, hmm, I'm free. I'm well, exper- the experience when you were, when you were a victim of a hate crime. Oh, uh, in 2016, yes. I guess it was. Yeah. 2015. The, the Walgreens incident. That morning when I, I was I was sick, I went to Walgreens, picked up some medic, medicine, some medication, and on my way out, being attacked because of my color of skin and T-shirt that I was wearing, which had a rainbow a shirt a rain, rainbow flag on it, and um, being attacked for for who I am, and knowing that this person targeted me because of my skin color, and then targeted me because of the shirt that I was wearing that gave out that I was someone who was part of the LGBTQ community. So I think that that fear of that, that, that minority stress has affected me person, uh, personally in a way that sometimes should I hide my LGBTQ-ness, if you should say, like, should I live in fear that if I wear a rainbow flag or rainbow shirt that I might be attacked and knowing here in the state of Oklahoma, that it's not a protected class, because that incident, the only reason they considered it a hate crime was because of the racial slurs. So that that to me says only half of who I identify is protected, and so that does affect per, the personality to a lot of minorities and gives them stress in a way of, well, will I be protected? Will I be safe in these situations? Jose, thanks for sharing that story. I. I'm glad that you're okay today and and the strong advocate that you are today. I can relate to some degree in living in Oklahoma and wearing my, you know, rainbows. It's, you know, at some point you're hesitant about, well, am I going to encounter someone that this isn't, they're not necessarily going to agree and it makes you a little nervous and that's no way that we should have to live. So thank you so much, Jose, for sharing that. How about for you, Toby? How has minority stress affected you personally? So I have a white passing privilege that most people uh, don't realize that I am a registered nation, a registered member, enrolled member of the Choctaw Nation. But I grew up in a family that was that were strong advocates for immigrant farm workers, Native American rights, women's issues, and even you know as a kid, would witness my father defend. Uh, a gay man who was being pressured to leave our church that we attended. So that's kind of the tree that I came from. So it has always, uh, I just grew up with that being important in my family and me never being able to ignore when I see people being oppressed. But, but for instances, here's a couple of things I want to make the parallel. We have the Lynn Riggs mural on the Dennis Arnelli Quality Center. Lynn Riggs was celebrated Cherokee 
playwright from Oklahoma in the 1930s and 40s who wrote the story that became the Broadway musical Oklahoma. So Oklahoma legislators every year love to have the song sung at the state capitol, you know, whenever the session opens. They don't realize that they're celebrating a song that was inspired uh, by a, a gay, indigenous, Native American playwright. And so we had that mural vandalized where the person specifically stitched up the mouth on the Lynn Riggs mural to make sure to, to send the message we're silencing this indigenous queer person's story, even though he's been dead for decades, but his story continues to live on. And so it's actually revived his story. And then they, you know, spray painted on it, abomination. And just in the last two weeks is that the restoration of that mural finally complete. It took us a whole year to deal with that. When the center was shot up on March, uh, in March of 2016, we get fuzzy on some of these dates because we have this experience. The other part of the story that most people don't realize is that the center had, a, had, had placed on the top of the porch a huge banner that said, immigrants are welcome here. So that was the banner that we had put up over the porch that said that immigrants are working are welcome here. And then some person drove by and, you know, shot 14 bullet holes into the front glass and the doors of the center and vandalized it. We hear regularly, we have hate phone calls that come in on our helpline where people are cussing and screaming at us, not just because of our sexual orientation and gender identity, but they'll fold it into racial ethnic slurs. And that, you know, I've, I can't tell you how many times on the helpline we've had people call and say, why don't all of you faggots go back to Mexico where you came from? So I don't know if they think Latin people influence our culture that much, but we see it regularly where people will take racial and ethnic slurs and tie them in to homophobic, transphobic slurs and try to lump it all together. Well, the fact that you guys are still having this many hate crimes just shows how much more work there is to be done and how important it is for you guys to be in the roles that you are. So seven times we've had the center vandalized seven times uh, since uh, President Trump was elected. And it's extremely frustrating and saddening every time it happens. So we'll, we'll move on to the next question. In your lives, what tools and support networks have helped you the most combat discrimination and distress? Toby, let's start with you. Well, I, I did not see anywhere in my culture reflected openly gay people who were celebrated. My parents figured out early that I, you know, of, of our eight kids, I was, I was the one that was different and unique. And so my parents were, were deep religious believers. They were also very politically astute and very educated. And so they didn't see it as something to be ashamed of. They were very concerned that they provide the support for me. Now, I didn't listen to most of my parents' instruction. I went right the opposite direction and found myself at a Christian college, went, you know, outside of the state of Oklahoma. I could have easily went to the University of Oklahoma where my father was a teacher, but I had to leave Oklahoma because I was running from my own internalized homophobia. And there I encountered a capitalist Christian group who led me to believe that I could pray my gay away by really, really being deeply religious and throwing my efforts into uh, religious causes. 
Whenever I finally said I'd had enough of living like that, I was in a heterosexual marriage. I had two children. And so me and my wife at that time had to deal with the reality that I was never, ever going to be fixed, that there was nothing wrong with me. And so I came out. And when I came out, what I was, you know, I was kicked out of the biggest church in town. I was disowned by my siblings. My parents had died, but I was disowned by my family and cut off from our family trust. I was fired by an elected official who I worked for because although he valued my work, he was afraid to hire, you know, to have an openly gay man doing his work in his office and was getting pressure from, you know, Christian fundamentalist attorneys who were furious that uh, I was still working there. So, so I turned to the only place I knew, which was this organization, because the worst thing, not me being fired, not me being disowned by my family, not me being kicked out of my church. The worst thing in my life at that time was Oklahoma legislators had introduced a bill where they would not allow gay people to have custody, joint custody of their children. That targeted me personally because me and my ex-wife had a very civil divorce. We still have strong relationship and we've co-parented our children and I now have grandchildren and we've lived as a family with this uniqueness and we've made it be able to work for our family. But Oklahoma legislators decided they didn't trust parents and families to make these decisions for themselves. And so I considered that particular attack on me individually the worst experience of my life, that somebody was possibly going to keep me from being able to have my children and be involved in their lives. And the only place I knew to turn was this organization. And I called the helpline, which I could remember because it spells out 743-4297, which spells out the gays. And I was familiar with that phone number that I had called back in the 1970, in 1979 when the Tulsa World first did a story about it. And I, these were the only people I knew to contact. And I worked with them to go to the Capitol and defeat that bill in the 1990s. So they had my loyalty after that. Everything we do uh, needs to improve. We rarely do anything perfect, uh, but they have my loyalty, and I'm here committed to us providing the resource, and the re resources have to be so diverse because people's needs are diverse. They're so unique. Everybody's experience is unique to them, and one of the things that Jose has done such an amazing job with us for the last seven years is making sure we specialize our services to understand the intersectional oppressions that individuals experience because of the historical trauma associated with their race, associated with their religious background, associated with their culture. It's important that we do all we can to improve and make sure we meet people where they're at and help them in their particular challenge. Well, I've personally been able to see some of your photos of your family, and you have a beautiful family, Toby. I'm very blessed. You are very blessed. How about for you, Jose? What tools and support networks have helped you the most? Tools and support, I would say just uh, surrounding myself with individuals who understand the intersectionality work, understand the struggles that Latinx LGBTQ individuals go through. I could share a story like uh, when... I had two friends and myself went to a gay, a gay bar. At this gay bar, I showed my Oklahoma ID and my friends had their passports from their country. And the door, the door person asked, where's the stamp that proves that they're here legally? I had mentioned, well, 
I had said, there, this is a bar, not Homeland Security. I don't understand why you need to have a stamp that they're here legally. Uh, these are valid IDs. Well, I need to have proof that they're here in the country legally in order to come in. I asked to speak to the manager. The manager came down and said, it's against the law to serve to illegal people. So I'm going to have to ask you to leave before we call immigration. And at that time, it was I, I it brought back memories of my family being discriminated with public accommodations that way, and now seeing it in person that a marginalized community was marginalizing another. And so I knew that there were tools and support out there. I knew about the Equality Center. At that time, I wasn't involved, but I knew that you could file a discrimination complaint. So that happened on a Saturday. Sunday, I filed a complaint form. And by the end of the week, we were able to work out the situation. But knowing that there were tools out there to combat discrimination helped me be involved also. And I so I that's what started my involvement at the Equality Center, that if it happened to me and happened to other LGBTQ undocumented individuals, it was happening uh, again. And I wanted to make sure to educate several community bars, community individuals, members, that what that discrimination story. So also building my own support network and building my own tools to help other individuals who have gone through that discrimination and distress. Um, inserting myself within the Latinx community. In the Latinx community, there is a lot of machismo still, where this mentality of men have to act this way and women have to act this way in these roles. And also with religion tied in, in it with Christianity and Catholicism, homosexuality is a sin or it's bad. So I've had it, it the first two years that I started working at the center and inserting myself within these communities, it was hard. A lot of doors slammed in my face, not supporting, uh, didn't understand the intersectionality work of the work that they're providing and how it helps or how they could help the LGBT community. So I had to educate a lot of these individuals that, you know, there might be a line of like a horizontal line of Latinx community members, a horizontal line and within the Muslim community, a, ho a horizontal line within the black community, and LGBTQ and the LGBT line goes vertically right through all of them, and how they, how their programs, their resources are not are kind of discriminating against LGBTQ individuals and not being inclusive. So I've had to build my own support system as well as help structure the existing support systems to help the LGBTQ community intersectionality work. Jose, your story is just one of total resilience, which is a perfect segue into our next question. The symposium panel will feature advocates who will share their perspectives on the fight for resilience and healing. What is it going to take to win that fight going forward? So he poked me. He, he do you want him to answer oh. or me to answer? How about, how about Toby? You you go ahead and answer because I think Jose's story is, was super powerful and and one of total resilience. So I would love to hear your answer. Well, too. we we know that survival and you know when you use the word resilience, sometimes that doesn't translate to mean the same thing for everybody. But survival of what people have to do to survive, and then remember what they did to be survive to survive that situation and then to commit themselves to improve 
the path to survival to make it easier and broader. You know, uh, we have several people on staff here who, I mean, everybody we have here started out as a volunteer, me included. And I used to clean porta potties and haul the trash at the Pride Festival. That was my first introduction to where I jumped in to help. What comes from that is we find individuals who come here because of the trauma they experienced or the isolation they felt or whatever issue was a barrier for them associated with their sexuality, their gender identity, or a family experience. Because not everybody that works here would identify as LGBTQ. Some of them are straight allies and have family who they who identify as LGBT. But everybody has their story of how they got through it, how they survived, and that there was that one place, one person, one thing that made their experience better. It should not be that hard for you to find help. It should be uh, posted on billboards, and we ought to have it broadcast where it shines on the face of the moon, which I'm still trying to figure out how to do that, to use the moon as a an opportunity to you know, like a billboard to promote, here's where you call for help. But it just should not be that difficult for you to find help. And we see this repeatedly, especially with the calls that we get in from rural parts of Oklahoma. Where can we find help? I mean, yesterday we had two families that called here specifically who were dealing with their transgender children going into Oklahoma schools and them not being able to get the resources and the help that they had their children. And so it was hard for them to find the place to get help. And that's why for me, resilience means I survive and I make the path of survival broader, wider, and clearly mark it so that other people can see where it's at. You know, it's not enough just that you were resilient. You know, it's not enough that Jose and the rest of our staff who have incredible survival stories and you yourself, Avery, you, you have some situations that you, it's not enough that you survived and were resilient. We have to make sure that that path that you chose, that you found help, it's clearly marked so that people can see uh, where they can find the help to help them in their situation. Well, you both are heroes of mine. And I want to say Thank you so much for all the work that you guys do at Oklahomans for Equality. It's so incredibly important. And thank you both so much for joining us on the Mental Health Download today. So we have a tradition here on the podcast to ask our guests to share one last little bit of wisdom as we end our discussion. So if you guys can both do that for us now, we'll be done. So let's start with Jose. My grandmother has a Spanish saying. And I'll give two, which are the most recent ones that we've always been t- we've been talking about here at the organization. These Spanish saints have developed my mentality, my efforts to continue on. And she always it just brings a smile to my face every time I think about them. So first one is no hay mal de que por bien no venga. There's no evil that uh, good will come from. So. It might be so evil or so mean, but good will come from it. And so anybody who's going through anything rough, hard, and distressed, good will come out of that. It'll make you stronger. It'll make you resilient. You are surviving, so it will pass. And another one is wherever the parrot goes, you will always be green. 
And that is just, it's about you. So wherever you go, you will always be you, no matter what. And to remind yourself that to be yourself. So anybody listening, uh, everybody listening, just remember to be you. And if you're going through a tough time, good will come out of that. This is my saying, and then I'll give you just a little short context on it. It, It's not enough uh, for me to have gotten through it. I have a responsibility to make sure that I help someone else uh, get through it, survive. That I can, just because it's not impacting me, doesn't mean I can be silent upon it. So when I was a child, one of the things my mother was very concerned was about immigrant farm workers. And so there was an experience of where she would have us help her put together basically what were care care packages and gently use school clothes and things like that. And then she would have us go out. uh, She would take us out into fields outside of Oklahoma City where there were immigrant farm workers. And when I say immigrant farm workers, it wasn't men. It was mothers with small children. I mean, like children as young as three and four working in migrant and agricultural settings. And so my mother would take us out there. And of course, it's Oklahoma and it's in July and it's a thousand degrees out there. And me and my siblings would be complaining about how we were hot. Why was our mother making us do this? And there we would present these um, care packages to these mothers and their children. And I mean, literally these sometimes these children, their mothers would just strip them in the middle of these these agricultural farms and she would have them change into these clothes, these clothes that we had that we had brought. And then they would have to look over their shoulders to make sure the supervisor wasn't going to punish them for stopping work. And on the way home, my family, my children, my siblings and I would just be totally silent. We had complained all the way out there. Why was mom making us do this? And we'd go out there and all the way back, we'd been so impacted for seeing that our privilege and, you know, the opportunities we had, that there were people who were our age or younger than us, that the life of poverty and the life of barriers to service and and development and opportunity to improve your lives, they were just working to be able to feed their families. And we would just be silent on the way home. And my mother knew that. And when we pull in the driveway, we would be so silent before we could get out of the car, she'd turn around and she'd look all of us in the face and say, you must remember, it is your responsibility to be a blessing to others. So I had that experience reinforced repeatedly in my life and it's just never, I've never been able to get away from it. I cannot ignore people who are facing poverty, discrimination because of their race and of course in the work I do every day with individuals who are being stigmatized or marginalized because of their sexual orientation, gender identity or expression. 